1: approach to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best. You
2: need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing.
1: Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption?
2: Hello,
3: listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salic, And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, it's a key moment for UK ministers. This week, they have to decide, in fact, in the next three days, on whether and how long to extend the country's lockdown. Three more weeks of restriction are what's being reported on the, to be on the cards, at least according to the Times. The Times says the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, who's deputising for Boris Johnson at the moment, of course will keep the lockdown in place at least until May the 7th. The Work and Pensions Secretary, Therese Coffey, says the UK will only lift the restrictions once it's determined the
0: clinically best option. We're talking about a battle against coronavirus that isn't going to be over in weeks. It will take months as we try and do other elements there. For example, are people aware the development of a vaccine may take some considerable time. But in the short term, the focus is on that treatment stopping the spread.
2: And the government's chief scientific advisor expects the daily rate of UK deaths to continue to rise, having reached eleven thousand people as of Monday. Well, for more, let's bring in Bloomberg's senior executive editor David Merritt. Uh, David, I suppose this is more of a medical issue than it is a political one, given that the government have said time and time again they'll be led by the scientists, by the experts.
1: Yes, that's right, and no real surprise, of course. I don't, you know, that this period of lockdown in the UK is going to be. Extended and of course no real dissenting voices. He said no kind of politics here. We've got a new Labour leader, Keir Starmer. who's saying yes, we should just also follow the scientific advice. And um, really, uh, I guess the question is how many weeks they're going to they're going to commit to at this point uh, before anything changes. But um, you know things have a habit in this crisis of changing. Uh, rapidly, we saw that initially when this lockdown came about in the UK. Of course, you know were, the, the UK was having much more of a hands-off approach, and suddenly everything changed. Um, but you no, know, no big uh, political twist in terms expected this week. Of course, the big, um, strange uh, quality of this, though, of course, is the person who really needs to make this decision isn't actually uh, currently supposedly doing his job. He's in, he's resting up. The Prime Minister, he's at checkers um, recently, of course. Out of hospital and intensive care, and on strict uh, uh, instructions from his doctors not to be working. So, a decision of this magnitude, uh, it's sort of inconceivable that that's not being made by the Prime Minister. That's the strange thing at the moment.
3: And David, I mean, we've sort of said it's semi-not political because the government is committed to following the science and the rest of the politicians on both sides seem to be following that. But it, it is in a way a very political issue because unless there's some sort of target date now announced by the government, some hope, if you like, for the many hundreds of thousands, millions of people who've been stuck in their homes here in Britain for three weeks... Um, Oh, isn't there a risk of perhaps losing losing the, the goodwill of the public and perhaps people giving up hope and perhaps coming out anyway?
1: Well, absolutely. And, and of course, you know, cast cost your mind back a few weeks. One of the reasons why the government said they were delaying bringing about these measures is they said there's a finite amount of time that the public will put up with these sort of restrictions. It's very interesting, though, that lots of surveys coming out at the moment showing that the public are actually very much behind this lockdown and in fact would support even more measures if it was seen to be bringing uh, the outbreak under control. And that goes against a lot of the government's initial thought. They didn't think the public would be this compliant. They didn't think everyone would be so willing to make such radical changes to their lives, uh, but they have everyone, uh, the vast majority, not everyone, of course, the vast majority of people seem to be obeying by the rules and are willing for it to go longer. But of course there is a price to pay for this. And you're right. Of course, it's political decision, because the money on every single day that the country is locked down, the economic toll, of course, increases, um, you know, the amounts having to be spent by the chancellor to prop up businesses to, to to supplement wages, keep going up and up and up. And at some point, there needs to be a reckoning of that, aside from the economic cost. There, of course, is a social cost as well and a health cost for keeping people cooped up. So all these things have to come into play. Um, and the government this week, as they make this decision, say they're taking all of these factors uh, into account. It, it's a balancing act between these different uh, arenas. And, you know, as time goes on, I think you can see the politics of this will continue to, to get louder, if you like. You know, as I said before, the new Labour leaders is the line at the moment. But, you know, the longer this goes on, you can expect more dissenting voices. And as the toll increases, both in terms of the disease and of the other um, unexpected outcomes, that debate is just going to get more and
2: more intense. And David, you mentioned the polling that people are in favour of the lockdown measures and indeed want more. Is the risk then that when easing does start, you have a risk of non-compliance and that people don't want to leave their homes? They're still scared about the virus. They're still worried about vulnerable uh, family members and loved ones. And then you have a whole new problem on your hands when you've run this huge PR campaign to try and get people to stay home and you then want to reverse it.
1: Uh, absolutely. You know, some of the market, some of the um, the messaging has been pretty intense. I just saw one this morning from Downing Street saying, don't kill someone, you know, accidentally by going outside of your house. So to suddenly reverse that in a few weeks time and say it's all fine, you can go to the park, go to the pub, go back to work. You know, we've seen this in other bits of the world, of course. Look at what happened in Wuhan in China, where this all began. Um, uh, on uh, Loosening restrictions, you still had empty restaurants, you still had empty trains. People are nervous about going out um, and interacting on the same way that they did with people before. And of course, that has a huge that has huge implications for the shape of the economic recovery that we might see. You know, when the government makes its decision that it's safe to go back to work, it really does want people to get back to work. We've seen this all around the world. We heard Donald Trump talking about it again yesterday about the sort of pent-up demand. But will that demand be there? I think that's a big question. Um, and experiences in other places of the world, you know, don't give um, huge amounts of confidence that we're gonna see this sharp spring back. People's behaviour is gonna potentially take a long time to get back to normal after
3: this. The other thing that I think is very striking at the moment, David, is the amount of uh, accusations piling up against the government's handling, at least the administration's handling, inefficiency, even incompetence, for example, in handling things like PP personal protection equipment, ventilators, big piece in The Guardian today talking about how uh, it could have been done a lot better and the government simply missed opportunities, suggestions, wrong emails, all kinds of things. I mean, this is going to be the stuff of, well, imagines, innumerable uh, incompetence. Inquiries in the years to come.
1: You can certainly imagine that, can't you? The public inquiry on this one is is sure to um, is sure to be a big thing when the dust has finally settled on this epidemic. But you know, the British government, yes, coming in for lots of criticism, all those things you mentioned. They're not alone in this, of course. Around the world, um, governments have been caught uh, on the wrong foot with this, the scale of this uh, outbreak and and the requirements it's it's putting on. Things like the the, the the respective health services. You had President Macron of France made an address to to the French people last night. He said, you know, he admitted hands up to so that we were ill prepared um, for this outbreak. The British government haven't quite gone that far to say that, uh, issue some sort of mayor culpa yet. But there is an acknowledgement. The scale of this um, this crisis is such that. You know, very few governments around the world are really ready for it. Um, But it has exposed lots of weaknesses in the systems here. Things like the diagnostics, you know, the testing. Testing has been a big problem here. We're way behind countries like Germany, which had a far more extensive network. But then questions about how things were ramped up um, and, you know, the timing of it all. Um, It is a little bit um, hard to say at the moment. There is a difference when you hear the government speak and then you hear anecdotal evidence for things like shortages of PPE. Those two narratives don't add up. We'll probably have to wait for this inquiry, as you say, to come. That may be many years hence before we get um, any answers. But, yeah, and another question, I think, is how much of all this criticism is really sticking with the public? For now, the government's ratings continue to be very strong. Uh, Boris Johnson's personal ratings and after his very personal video he put out after being released from hospital, praising the NHS, his ratings remain very, very strong. So, yes, there's an acknowledgement that things are going wrong, but for now, the public seem to be forgiving them, acknowledging that this is a very difficult problem to solve. As this continues to go on for many more months, the question is, will the public opinion shift and will the government's popularity begin to suffer? Or It's too early to tell at this point.
2: And what about Parliament? It's due to resume in a week's time. There have been lots of MPs coming onto this programme to talk about how they think that might look. What do you think? There's lots of talks of a virtual Parliament, but there are so many facets of it. It seems difficult to imagine that it's going to be able to be replicated exactly as it exists in person.
1: That's right. It's certainly not going to be looking what what we're all used to, you know, the bare pit of everyone screaming, uh, at each other. We, we got a bit of a glimpse didn't we, before they went into recess with a very thinned out chamber. So only the people speaking and um, you know social distancing amongst those green benches. So, um, but I think what we're going to see is something even more extreme than that. They're talking about having people coming by video link uh, to ask questions, maybe only having the key front bench people in the room, in the chamber there, um, to lay out measures. But it's this balancing act between keeping everyone safe and preventing Parliament being a, um, a hotspot for spreading the disease, but also you know, the desire amongst other parliamentarians to hold the government to account, to we'll ask these difficult questions. That's what Parliament is for. Um, and in a time of national emergency, like now, um, that becomes more and more important. And I think lots of MPs are very keen to do that. Many of them, are uh, behalf of the government. Have had, have had the disease already, so Mr. Johnson shouldn't be too worried about standing up, presumably, in Parliament from here on in.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg.
2: Let's have a look at some of the other stories making the news in the world of politics. And we start with a report that's uh, making several papers today uh, that the government missed three chances to be part of an EU scheme to bulk buy personal protective equipment for health workers. It's something we've heard a little bit about before and the story sort of trundled on. The Guardian reporting that Britain had opportunities to get items like masks, gowns, gloves under an EU initiative, but didn't do so. It writes that European medical staff are set to receive the first of 1.3 billion pounds worth of ppe under the scheme that involves 25 countries the department for health saying that it will give the nhs and the social care sector everything they need to tackle this pandemic including working with countries around the globe but as we know there is a big shortage of ppe and people are really struggling to get hold of it on in this country
3: and, of course, that buys straight back into the Europe issue, which we'd kind of forgotten about for a while. But meanwhile, the care home situation seems to be very worrying indeed. Official, The official death toll has been criticised uh, in the coronavirus for only covering people who die in hospital, but not those in care homes or, indeed, in their own houses. It comes after the government confirmed there had been virus outbreaks at more than 2,000 care homes in England, and the figures have prompted the charity Age UK to claim that virus is running wild in care homes... For for the elderly. The director Caroline Abrahams told the BBC, quote, the current figures are airbrushing older people out like they don't matter.
2: Mm, Yeah, we saw the uh, figures rise tenfold in a week, according to the new data. Uh, And then we've got optimism draining away in the financial sector, as you might expect. There's a survey by the Confederation of British Industries that shows that financial firms expect demand profitability and employment to decline sharply in the coming months it also found the biggest rise in the value of non-performing loans since 2009 so a big knock-on effect when that sort of thing happens lots of people affected the bank of england saying last week that the coronavirus outbreak hasn't harmed the core of britain's banking system but it's due to publish an extra health check on the financial system that's coming on may the 7th so a little while off still
3: Indeed, and made the cent quite a significant date in the calendar. That might be the point mm. when some of the regulations. Uh, begin to be lifted, at least if you believe what people are saying out there. But nowhere is the f- is feeling the economic and social impact of the lockdown and the result of COVID-19 more than the UK's cities and largest towns. Now, they account for around 60% of the country's economic output. And while London remains the country's hotspot, Sheffield and Liverpool have also been very badly hit by virus infections. Let's bring in Paul Swinney, Director of Policy and Research at the Centre for Cities. Paul, thanks for being with us. Um, let's start off with a question. I mean, are there any trends to explain why, for example, uh, certain cities have been much harder hit than others? I'm thinking uh, Newport, Cardiff and Swansea, for example, in Wales being very badly hit.
4: It's difficult to tell at the moment why exactly that's the case. I think we know why London has had both, sort of, both high numbers of, of people infected but also appears to be sort of ahead of the curve compared to other places and that's because it's a successful place International city, many people coming in and out, and you know, it, it means it's very susceptible in terms of, um, of then sort of bringing the, in, the disease in and then seeing it spread as well, particularly given that so many people use public transport too. In other places, I think partly it might be down to um, down to them testing more. I mean, perhaps it's going on in other places. That certainly is a reason that's been put forward as to why Sheffield's figures are so high because actually they're just really good at testing people. However, we haven't actually got the data to be able to verify that, because data at a local level, in terms of how many tests have been done, isn't being released. So I think we are still very unclear as to why the virus is spreading the way that it has done.
2: Can we draw any conclusions from factors like density, population density or average ages? I'm just looking at places like Newport, Cardiff and Swansea from all the data that you've collated to be the hardest hit. Uh, And it's sort of surprising that you're getting these clusters in South Wales, for example. And then you've got places like Peterborough and Hull that are relatively unscathed.
4: So density um, has definitely got something to do with it. And I think that's uh, why uh, why London is being hit so hard or indeed why, say, Cardiff or Newport has probably been it's harder than, say, some of the, the more rural areas of, of Wales, because you've just got that great interaction with people, and so the, the chances of increasing the of, of the spread or of, of the disease spreading therefore increases. Um, but I don't think it is just down to density. I think if you look at other factors, as you were touching on there, around say, age or around. Um, susceptibility in terms of your general health or respiratory diseases in particular, those sorts of factors are going to come into play too, as well as there's some research suggesting that incomes may have something to do as well with poorer areas potentially being hit harder than than richer areas. But I think at the moment, because the data is just sort of unfolding, um, currently it's quite difficult to say why exactly the virus is spreading out in the way that it does, but it does then pose interesting questions about potential impact on the economy too, not only on people's health, but how is that going to play out across the country?
3: Now, Paul, I mean, there's been some interesting analysis or attempted analysis of the way these things are playing out there was certainly a concern about the racial element in this the sense that a lot of BAME people seem to be being hit harder but some say well that reflects uh, levels of poverty potentially and I guess is it also true to do with the south north divide which we you know is notoriously one of income really in the UK is that why um, are we seeing the north south divide really replicated in the kind of uh, outbreaks and the, the severity of them
4: in terms of the, the outbreaks, I think, the, again, there isn't any um, very strong uh, geographic pattern um, within sort of, cities and large towns. I think, again, you see London sort of seeing large, um, large increases early on. Slough saw quite large increases as well. And then you see sort of, Sheffield coming up behind. But if you then, say, um, look at a place like Hull, as you alluded to earlier, actually the, the number of outbreaks or number of confirmed cases, which is only a very small sliver of actually the number of cases we think exist, it's is about what we actually measure, um, or what public health England measures. You know, in hull it's pretty low. Um again, it's not clear as to why that's the case in terms of is it because Hull isn't a particularly um strong economy? And so people coming in and out of Hull in the last sort of five or six weeks hasn't been as high as say um at place like Cardiff, for example, or is it um because um because the um, the, the demographic makeup and that why say why say whole uh, the health of Hull's population isn't as as good as what it is in perhaps cities further south. As we're seeing, the demographic makeup looks a little bit different in Hull. Which, if it's true that certain racial groups are affected more by coronavirus than others, then it would mean that on that one measure, Hull would be less susceptible. But of course, on other measures like like low income, et cetera, you think that maybe it would be a little bit more susceptible. So, again, I think it's it's quite we can observe the data that's there. Um, Currently, But because we're in the middle of a a storm, it's quite difficult to try and understand exactly what's driving the spread of it. Um, I think that's only something that maybe um, after the crisis has passed, we can can say something about that. I think what we can say something about now is the potential impact on the economy and how that might vary across the country. And that is certainly giving policymakers a a number of of questions at the moment. And, And we're doing a lot of research on that with some emerging answers coming out.
2: And what does this all mean for the NHS in terms of allocating resources? Because I'm guessing that some of the places we've talked about that are the hardest hit aren't also the places that have the biggest ICU units or the most advanced hospitals or the most medical workers. Uh, And so we're going to have to see a lot of uh, shifting around of these resources to to be able to deal with these people.
4: This poses a a very interesting challenge. I think if you look at the well, we know that 1.5 million people the government identified are, are people who are particularly at risk, and the government has asked them to, to stay at home for, for 12 weeks, um, and that may even be extended. So they're people with very poor health or particular health problems. Now, if we look at um, the geography of those sorts of people, you know, where are these 1.5 million people? We do see that they, um, they tend to be further north. Um, in, in cities in the north of England, particularly poorer cities in the north of England. Um, and that's looking at uh, things like general health care or general health levels of health, life expectancy, um, but also particular things like respiratory diseases. Um, existing ones tend to be more concentrated in cities further north. Now, if you overlap that with, um, with NHS resources, and we haven't got any strong measure of that, but if we say look at the number of people employed in hospitals in different places as a, as a proxy for that, um, what you see is that while there isn't a, um, a strong correlation between the two, that there isn't a case that where the most vulnerable people are, NHS resources are, are weakest, we do see some crossover in some places. So if you're looking at a place like, like Blackburn, for example, um, what we see there is that um, not only do they have a high share of their population that appear to be particularly vulnerable um, to something like coronavirus, but actually the amount of... Um, NHS resources don't appear to be as high as what we are in, in other parts of the country. And so I think the message for that then is, is as you say, when it then comes to thinking about we've got extra resources coming on on stream, we've got people who are coming out of retirement to try and deal um, with the crisis and help the NHS, it might be actually we need to then direct some of those resources towards those places because there's that sort of... Um, a dual problem of not only sort of uh, demographics that don't really point in the right direction or leave a place vulnerable, but also it doesn't necessarily have the NHS resources um, in place, which means that while the NHS everywhere clearly has been overwhelmed, in these places it's particularly acute, and we need to um, have special focus on those places.
3: Now, Paul, one really interesting aspect of this, one that you probably you're experiencing, we certainly are, is, of course, working from home, not going to the office. And and, and kind of one part of the DNA of big cities is obviously people traveling to the places where they work. If when things have changed in the end, perhaps when this is all over, that trend continues working from home through technology. Is that going to change the nature of our cities as well?
4: This is certainly a debate that's that's raging at the moment, but indeed it's been a debate that's been raging for at least the last twenty years about the rise of um, of telecommunications um, technologies, and that geography doesn't matter now, and the world is flat, and people will be able to work anyway, you know, whether it's central London or in the middle of the Highlands. I think clearly, in a crisis like this, people get to are forced to try new things in terms of using the technologies I'm sure we're all using at the moment. And it gives you a slightly different perspective on how you might be able to go about doing your job. However, having said that, I'm sure we've all or many of the listeners to this will also have uh, had many hours of frustration about technology not working properly or just feeling that meetings don't quite go as well when you're not in the same room as somebody else, you can't read their body language in the same way. So I'm sure on the margins there may be some people that say, Do you know what I probably can work at home on a Friday now rather than, um, than going to the office five yeah. days a week. and there may be some of those changes. but crucially, right. you know while the crisis accelerates something, these these are discussions we've had for a long time and yet people continue to go into yeah. work, even the technology' being there. so I wouldn't expect a large change.
3: Bloomberg Westminster listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.